Nothing like following up a worship set with uh, music from uh, Halloween. Susan and I have friends, no lie, years ago, they were good friends of ours. We've lost touch with them. Tim and Noreen were their name, and they had two boys, little boys, and they named their first son Jason and the second son Michael. And uh, I told them, they didn't, they didn't get the logic there. I said, you should name your third son Freddie, right? So you just have Jason from Halloween, Michael from Friday the 13th, or flip that. Yeah, flip that. Anyway, we're thir- three weeks into this uh, series on fear, and you see uh, A to Z, some fears on the screen there to the Halloween music. And... Uh, There is, I want to tell you, a good kind of fear. Do you believe that? Like there's a motivating fear. In fact, you're here because of fear. There is a a detection system, a radar detection system built within you. It's innate and uh, it's used to, to do that very thing, to sense fear and then respond accordingly. Our early ancestors, it meant a lot to them uh, back in the days when they would see a lion or bear, uh, you know, stealth-like in nearby bushes, and they would sense the danger, and something within them would tell them that they needed to flee. They didn't have to outrun the, the tiger or the lion or the bear, just the person with them, right? But something in their, their brains is activated. When fear is triggered, the whole body, most of the body responds accordingly, and the eyes widen, and the pupils, they expand, and the heart pounds, and adrenaline is released into the muscles into the bloodstream and blood is diverted from the skin that's why when you're really scared you get pale I'm pale because I'm Irish but for the rest of you right blood is is diverted from the skin and it's released to the major muscles like the legs so you for you know quick getaway and you're able to avoid danger and even in our modern day there's sort of a built-in security system for us so fear motivating fear is a good one it tell it teaches Kids demonstrates to them that they should keep their hands away from the hot stove and running in a, into a busy intersection. And teenagers, it keeps teenagers from driving recklessly, I hope. My teenage daughter just got her driver's license Friday. Uh, it, it, it helps, it keeps some men from wearing bold plaid colors and Hawaiian t-shirts with sandals and black socks and with their shorts like they fear what their wife may do. There's some motivating kind of fear and so fear is why you're here, but what we're talking about is this paralyzing fear. When I was a young man, a teenager, I had my first cracks at public speaking. Do any of you like to speak in public? It's one of, survey says, one of our great fears. And I've learned that through trial and error. My first few times particularly were fearful. People would say, you know, how'd you do? How'd it go? Well, I, I think I did okay, but it was, you know, maybe God used me, but boy, I was nervous. My palms were sweaty. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, they're my palms. You're not looking at my palms, but trust me, they're sweaty. And then I learned later that my mouth would go dry. And then later, I'm a, I'm a brilliant guy. I'm very logical. And I thought, you know, that, you know, dry mouth, sweaty palms, I'll just, I'll just lick my hands, right? It's bad for public speaking. I've tried it. It's not good. An NFL quarterback can do that when they're at the line of scrimmage or, you know, in the, in the formation there. They can lick their fingers, but a public speaker can't do that. But look, there are fears that are paralyzing to us. And as you've either learned or been reminded, fear is the most often repeated command in all the Scripture. Now, let's clarify. It's not the most important command. What's the most important command? Do you remember? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's kind of an important one to get right. So love is the greatest commandment, but fear is the most common one. Do you know how many fear knots there are in the Bible? Anybody? 366. How cool is that? 
How many days are there in a year? 365. Like God is a genius. He threw in the leap year, right? Do not fear. Don't be afraid. 366 times God, Jesus, or an angel told a human being, don't be afraid. Why though? Why is that the most often repeated command? I don't think it's because God is uber concerned about you never experiencing emotional discomfort. I think it's his concern and his realization that the number one reason that you and I don't do what he says, that we avoid obedience, is because of fear. Now, around the room, up high and down low, the balcony and the lower level, I know there are people in here today who have a goal to achieve, a project to accomplish, a habit to break, a relationship to end, a relationship to restore, a debt to eliminate, a dream that God has given them, a really important action item or series of items or events that that you need to go toward, that you need to run hard after. But what is it? What is it that's holding you back? Alas, it's fear. Not the motivating fear that moves you away from danger and toward important things, but a paralyzing fear that holds you back. And so in these first two weeks, we've looked at the disciples and their relationship with Jesus in a boat and his teaching on fear and his all-important soul-shaping question of where is your faith. And then last week we looked at Psalm 27 and David and learned a little bit about David and the reality of fear in his very own life. And today I want us to look at what Life Magazine called recently the second most important person to ever live. He made the cover some 3,500 years later. Now, here's what's going to happen. I don't know a lot about the future, but I know that hopefully decades from now, I will die. And about a few months after that, nobody's going to really remember Robert Greene. But hey, what if you lived and 3,500 years later, you make the, the cover of Life magazine. Now, you know who the most important person is. That's, you know, there's no close second. It's Jesus Christ, of course. But this guy, Moses, has been named the second most influential person of all time. And think about the different arenas that he has influenced. Consider world religions. The three major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all give this guy credit for their, what they consider their divinely inspired moral code. Uh, politics and literature, pop culture and literature. We know about a famous film that was uh, developed on the life of Moses. Anybody old enough to remember the Cecil B. DeMille directed film with who, is the, who acted in Moses? Charlton Heston, the older crowd, answered that one. In 1933, there were two Jewish high school students in Cleveland who developed what would become a comic book hero. And his life was based in part on this man, Moses. Superman has Moses-like traits where he was sent away, exiled from his country to avoid extermination. He lived as a stranger in a strange land and returned to serve among ordinary, mundane people. Moses, this man, has influenced our own country. From the pilgrims coming over in 1642 and the revolution from the New England country, from the, those fathers, those mothers, the inspiration that was set in motion by this revolutionary figure named Moses. Our very first president, George Washington, was in some ways compared as a Moses-like figure as he set up a revolutionary, new, brand-new society. Founding fathers John Adams and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were commissioned 
to develop a seal for the United States. This is before there was a graphic arts department. And so these guys said, hey, let's have a seal. And if it was up to Benjamin Franklin, Moses would be on the center. Thomas Jefferson, apparently, was the loudest voice. And so Moses' inscription lost out to the bald eagle, as you probably know. But the words of Moses are inscribed on the Liberty Bell, at the Library of Congress, the Capitol, and the Supreme Court. In our own civil rights history, particularly here in the South, there have been central figures, of course, Martin Luther King Jr., who was compared uh, as a Moses-like figure with the all-important phrase, let my people go, and speaking about the promised land. Um, Figures in the civil rights and human rights have been inspired by this man. And so today we come to Exodus chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. We're going to do a really uh, sharp overview of this section of Scripture and draw out some insights. And here's what I want you to know about Moses. It's true of me. It's true of you. We got some issues. Now just nod your head if you're awake on kind of a warm, uh, rainy morning. But if you, you think we got some issues here, just kind of nod your head. Like you got some issues. Uh, issues keep a lot of us from church. Man, I got some issues I got some issues with the church. They got some hypocrites up there, not at Fondren, but other churches. You know, I got, got some, I'm not going to go today because I got some issues, and you know, I got my own issues. So I'm not, I'm not going to come to church because of the issues. Well, here's the thing. Today we look at a man, and we look at how God worked in his life despite his fears, and we see a whole bunch of issues. Look on the screen, or if you have an open Bible, Exodus chapter 3. And it says this in verse 11, but Moses, this most important man, he said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? We see that his first issue was an identity one, an identity issue, who am I? Now, how would we answer that question? We would say kind of what I have already said, like Moses, who are you? Dude, you're on the cover. 3,500 years later, you're on the cover of Life magazine. You're up there uh, sort of kind of in Jesus strata. You're really, really important. You've shaped world religions and literature and pop culture and our civil rights and a, a country like America. That's who you are. Oh, yeah, by the way, you brought plagues to Egypt and parted the Red Sea and led your people out of slavery and oppression and gave us the Ten Commandments. That's who you are. That's that's what we say. But what, would, what did he say? Moses would say at the time, I've been abandoned by my parents. I was rescued at a river. I was adopted by a single mom. I lived as a Hebrew in Egypt. That wasn't an easy life, a Hebrew in Egypt. I had a father-in-law named Jethro. That might have been the biggest curse, hanging out with Jethro. He worked as a, as a wounded man in the wilderness, in the desert, in a tough region He had a modest life. He eked out a very tough existence with very few luxuries or comforts. Who am I, Moses would ask. It's a question you ask and I ask. Anytime we face an endeavor, anytime we think about our lives, who am I? And oftentimes, you and I, what we do is we look at our lives through what we don't have, through who we're not, and the inner monologue, we label ourselves, and we see what we're not. And fear paralyzes us. And this great man Moses had an identity issue. Who 
am I? I've gotten to a point in my life through living, through learning, through some accumulated wisdom that I really believe that everything flows out of our identity. Who am I? I sat down with a man this week. It was an appointment that I didn't see coming. He's just passing through the state and he's he's looking for what God has for him next and he's beat up. And he's wrestling with this question, who am I? And he's hearing a voice. It's his own voice, but it's also his former boss and employer. And he hears the voice telling him everything that he's not. All that he lacks. And this guy's beat up, and it breaks my heart to know that this former employee, someone I don't know, is a pastor. And where he used to work is a church. And there's this voice of condemnation in his head. He's beating himself up. Who am I? Who am I? Everything flows out of identity. We worship a triune God, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's hard to get our minds around, isn't it? I mean, it's okay to say that. It's hard to get our minds around that. And, you know, you're not going to be able to. He is God. We are not. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, the prophet Isaiah says. But there is this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we've taught this even a couple of times recently. Before Jesus began his ministry, he was baptized. And when he was baptized, the heavens opened up. And the Spirit descended like a dove. And he heard the voice of the Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The story of the gospel is that you and I, no matter the deficits in our parenting, no matter the voices in our heads, no matter the things that are beating us up and breaking us down, and that have us confused about our identity. The Father says, you are mine, and I am pleased with you. And Moses had this issue. He had an identity issue. Who am I? Not only did he have an identity issue, he had an authority issue. Look also at Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Can I just say, somebody probably needs to hear this, leadership is hard. We have a, we've got some young people here today who aspire to leadership. Leadership is very hard. In leadership, you're always taking people from here to there. And you've got to figure out, you've got to do a, a ruthless assessment of where you really are, where is here, and then an inspiring vision of where there should be. And it is so hard to lead. It is so hard to lead people because people are people. And Moses had this fear of people. Any, anybody have a fear of rejection? Anybody have a fear of what others may say? And Moses had this great fear. What are they going to think? Who do I say sent me? And God gives them this answer. We're not going to camp here, but it's fascinating to study and to learn about. But God is saying, my character is what you need. And you go in my authority, not your own. Back in the day when I served in Miami in South Florida in Coral Gables as a minister with Campus Crusade for Christ, we got to know a a couple there that just meant the world to Susan and I. And let me just say, I said this to the 930 crowd, if you're a young person, I hope you have a mentor. If you're a middle-aged person, it's harder, but I hope you have a mentor. I hope you have somebody that's walked where you've walked, that 
can talk to you and speak into you and share their, their warts and their beauty marks, lows and highs and all that. And we were so blessed. I think one of the things that has strengthened our marriage to this very day is that we had a mentor couple named Steve and Arlene DeBartelabin. And it was easy for them to, or for us to be mentored by them. One, we were so clueless. We were so young. And two, they were just so um, easy to follow and easy to respect. And they had a ministry of hospitality there at 1510 Delgado Avenue in Coral Gables, Florida. They still live there. They minister decade after decade. And he has been the chaplain for the Miami Hurricanes football team. If you follow sports, you know the Hurricanes. God knows they need a chaplain. And he has served for years on the sidelines, taping ankles, running with the coaches and getting to know them. And he's been with all the coaches through all those eras at the University of Miami. In addition to that, he served with the Miami Heat and the Florida Panthers hockey team. And there was a day where a prayer was answered in my own selfish life where Steve was traveling with one team and he asked me, little old RG, to fill in for him to do a chapel for the Miami Heat. And I was so excited about this moment. Now, the Heat at the time were terrible. This was before the days of Shaq and Dwayne Wade and all them. I mean, they were a terrible team, but they were playing the Chicago Bulls. And I was so excited to think about the Bulls and who was on that team, the world's most famous athlete, and the fact that maybe uh, he would definitely be in the arena, right? So I was going to see the dude, no doubt about it, but maybe he would come to chapel. So I prayed a prayer, uh, no vainglory in this prayer. Lord, I pray that Michael Jordan would come and hear me speak, <laughs> that he would look at me and listen to my words, hang on everyone, and we'd become friends and keep in touch, travel the world. <laughs> Part of that prayer came true that Michael showed up and he did look at me and I looked at him and those NBA players can I just say those are good those guys look better in their suits than I do I mean custom fit tailor-made from big and tall shops special ordered but these guys were there and it was a you know a 15 minute chapel service a time of prayer but man to have those guys there I was a young minister uh, probably not where I should be but I was just uh, I was starstruck and man, I was kind of reveling in the moment. Man, I had a, a pass to get in, a parking pass. I had a lanyard around my neck giving me access to the locker room, to the VIP room, a, a ticket to sit behind the bench there of the heat and cheer for the Bulls. I had access, but look, you know what I know. This is when the helium comes out of my balloon, right? I, I wasn't there on my authority. There was nothing good in me. No one had singled me out or picked me out and said, this guy ought to come speak. There's something great about him. I was there because I had authority granted to me. And Jesus said in Matthew 28, it's the great commission that we've come to know. He said, go, you're sent, go into all the world and preach the gospel, teaching and admonishing them to observe all things baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lo, I am with you always. All authority has been given to me, and that authority is granted to you. Who do I tell? Who do I say sent them? You and I have someone far greater than my friend who gave me access that day to be a starstruck chaplain. We have the very God in heaven who's given us all the authority we need. And sometimes we have that very issue. Are they going to listen? Who do I say? What's going to happen to these people that I'm trying to lead? Moses was about to learn that God gives him. God gives him the authority. There's a third issue that Moses had. You've got a bunch of issues. It's good that he does. There's another issue. 
Exodus 4.1, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. There's a credibility issue that he has here. And this question, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't? And here, some of you may know this story. Here, God asked Moses a question. What's in your hand? Anybody remember the answer? There's a staff in his hand. Now, he's a shepherd, okay? He had a staff. He had a rod. He had some tools and equipment that shepherds had back then in leading their sheep on these Judean hillsides. And here Moses says, I have this staff. And God knows God knows it's not enough. Or is it? That's what Moses thought. And God taught him a lesson. Throw that staff down. It became a snake. And I shared a snake story last Sunday with you. Something that happened in my life a long time ago. Do you know that Fondren Church has a deacon? We've got a member who's a snake grabber. And Brent Shorter's one of our, one of our good guys here. I think he's away uh, out of town this weekend. But Brent's a snake grabber. You can go to YouTube and just punch in Mississippi snake grabbers. And Brent goes into swampy waters in Mississippi and Louisiana and grabs snakes. He didn't care. I mean, he'd grab them by the tail. And that's what God told Moses to do. Grab this snake by the tail. The, the staff turns into a snake and back again. And God has a series of things for Moses to teach him, hey, right here, right here in you and next to you and close to you, I'm going to show you some things some things that I'm going to do. I'm going to blow you away with what I'm about to do. And I think there's something good here for you this morning. I think there's something good for all of us. Because God asked us, what do you have? What's in your hand? I think there's two parts to this, really, as I thought about it. One would be, you and I, we don't really realize what we have. Like, you have some stuff in your life. You have some type of staff, something in your hand that God wants to use. He wants to increase it, multiply it, but he wants to use it. What do you have? You know, you have an intellect, the ability to think, to reason, and to create. You have strength, the ability to work and to build and produce. You probably have family and friends and colleagues. If you can read, you can do what 70% of the world's population cannot do very well at all. If you own a car, you're uh, in 2% of the world's population that own an automobile. Like, I guess what I'm saying to you is today, as we look at the world through our lens of lack, we don't realize what we're already holding. Like, you already have some stuff. You're waiting on a sign or a miracle, right? The staff to the snake, the snake to the staff, all this fun, cool stuff. But, like, you already are holding some stuff in your hand. You already have wealth and you already have means and you have some gifts and God has given it to you and you hold it already and you need to be awakened to it, enlivened to it and open to appreciating it and then letting it be used. What is in your hand? God asked Moses. But you know you're holding on to something else. And here the story varies. For some of you, you've been abused. Some have been through an abortion or the pain of a miscarriage or the battle of an addiction or the pain and loss of a divorce. And can I say to you, it's part of you and you hold it and God wants to use it. In my own life, I'm going to be general here for 
just for the purpose of being general, but there was something in my life that it caused a bit of um, embarrassment. Um, and I held on to it. I didn't tell people about it in my young adult years and following. And there in ministry, there were students, there were young people that needed to hear my story, but I didn't tell it to them. I just thought, ah, I want them to think I've got it all together, that I've never had anything bad happen in my life and everything was perfect at home and elsewhere. And I just didn't share this part of my story. And I'd be convicted and convicted and convicted. And finally, I opened up the suitcase with some folks and I kept the suitcase open. And I have ever since then. I have so that I can share it with people who need to hear it. Some pain, some, th- some, some things that I've experienced because it's part of it. And you know what I've seen? I've seen him use it. I've seen him use that very thing that I didn't want to tell people about. And here's the crazy thing. You know this is coming. It's the thing at times he uses the most. To connect with people. To talk about human frailty. To talk about his blessings in the midst of what is bad. And you hold on to stuff. Like don't, I love you. Don't act like you don't have issues. And you do. And you have things. And God is saying, what are you holding? I want to use that. Even the painful, not so pleasant, not pretty parts of you. He wants to use that. Back to our man with issues. Not only did he have this identity issue, this authority issue, this credibility issue. But he had a couple more issues. He had an ability issue. In Exodus chapter 4, but Moses said to the Lord. Moses is just like... He's taking his issues to God, isn't he? Like God's suggestion box is open. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord. There's a lot of ways you can read that, right? Like, how do, you think, how do you think you should say that? Let's say it out loud. How would you read that if you were me? Oh, my Lord. My Lord. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now, in the Hebrew language, it means fat tongue. Isn't that great? Like, I've got a fat tongue. And God, how are you going to use me with this fat tongue? Now, contrast a fat tongue with a silver tongue. And let me ask you, you ever been fooled, ladies, single ladies? Where are my single ladies? All my single ladies. Have you ever been fooled? Have you ever been tricked by a silver tongue devil? Right? Like, they're persuasive. Like, they're really persuasive. Now, Proverbs says this, a book of wisdom literature that gives great advice. It says, or sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Right? Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Here's the idea. If you want to get something from somebody, be nice to them. Like, start with being nice. Some of us don't get that right. Start with being nice, and you're more likely to persuade somebody if you're sweet. At least start there. But Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 2.14. I think I got my reference right. He said here that we do not come to you. I do not come to you. Very intelligent man. Remember, highly educated. He says, I do not come to you with persuasiveness of speech, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power. In other words, the gospel goes forth not by silver-tongued devils, snake oil salesmen, eloquent men and women. It goes forth when people see God doing a work. It's what I love about our college students and this next generation 
of young people. My generation, we were impressed by people who spoke well. This young generation is impressed by people who live well. And this persuasiveness of speech, it's kind of overrated. What we need is a demonstration of God's work in somebody's life. To see that it's real, that someone is flawed, but they're the embodiment of God's ongoing progressive work in their life. A demonstration of his power. And here Moses is saying, man, I don't have the ability. Now I will say that a church is to be led by gifted people. Now that's not saying the guy on the stage or the guy coming up to play the guitar. That's good. Like you want a speaker that can speak. In fact, in Ephesians 4, it says that we're joined together and the goal is to be built up in love. And that like joints and ligaments will be connected to each other. I say it often. This is not just a place to attend. It's a people to belong to and to connect with. Joints and ligaments. Preachers preach. Teachers teach. Leaders lead. Those with administrative gifts administrate. Those who have mercy gifts lead with mercy. Like you are called to discover your gift. And if this is your church, use your gift here. We will be blessed by it. But yet, there are story after story in this book, and Moses is one of them, where the lack of ability is what God chooses to use. You can't do that. and That's the very thing that I'm going to use. And not only does Moses have an identity issue, an authority issue, he's got a couple of other issues that we've talked about, a credibility issue, an ability issue, and he's got, maybe most painfully, an issue of unavailability. Here he says this in Exodus 4. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. A friend of mine pastors in the Midwest and he just did a sermon series called Three Dangerous Prayers. He picked them all out of the scripture. Search me from Psalm 139. Change me from John chapter 5. Send me from Isaiah 6. Like those are not prayers for safety and comfort and ease. Those are prayers, big prayers, bold prayers, dangerous prayers. Send me. The prophet Isaiah said that. I said it when I was a young college student. Lord, send me. Moses is saying, send someone else. And this is so important to say today. You can read it later, but in this story, this is the time where God gets angry with Moses. So let's not sweep this under the rug. God gets angry at Moses not because of something he did, but because he did nothing. He was playing this game of, God, I'm not going to be available to you. And can I say that a surrendered life that's available to be used by Him could be your greatest act of worship to Him. I love the story of Moses. It curtails here in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 22. It says, Moses went back to God. Now, if you read this later, you'll see he went back to God and he wrestled and grappled with God. It wasn't smooth. He went back with more issues and protests. But he went back to God. Where do you turn? Where do you turn? Horoscope? 
self-help, some gimmick, some trick, some mantra, some relic from the past, somebody you're asking to be your Savior, or you turn to God. Moses went back to God. And so there's this motivating fear. It's why we're here. But there's this paralyzing fear. And I close with this. A short parable. Picture a two-year-old girl. If it helps you to close your eyes, do that. But picture a cute little two-year-old girl standing on the edge of a swimming pool. And she's looking in and there's a father in the swimming pool with arms stretched open. And what is he telling his little girl? In one word he's saying... Jump. He's telling her to jump. But in accordance with that, he's telling her what is necessary because she's got this inner battle of conflict. He's telling her to jump. To trust me. I won't let you fall in. I won't let you fall out of my arms. Jump. And in this little girl's mind, she is so torn and conflicted. Everything Almost everything in her is screaming to stay right there on the edge. Look at the water. It's cold and it's deep and it's dangerous. She doesn't know how to swim. She's never done it before. A lot of bad things could happen. But there's a father and he seems to be certain and confident of the outcome. And he's big and he's tall. And for all of her two years, he's been very trustworthy. You see, trust says jump. And fear says, fear always says no. Every single time. And what I love about my man who made the cover is that he just takes this thing, this misnomer that I've got issues so God can't use me and his story just shatters it every fear that he could come up with real or perceived he wanted to trust his father who told him to jump would you join me as we pray Truly, Father, in this room, there are those of us whose God is comfort and safety. And we receive all the fear-mongering in our world and we perpetuate it. We tell our kids and each other all the time, be careful, be careful, be careful. Rarely do we say, take a risk, go for it, jump. And so we live in the midst of artificial thrills, video screens, vacation packages that move us out of our boredom and our safety in our fearful lives to give us 
moments of thrill. Tiny little bits of jumping. But Lord, in a world where evil is running rampant, where there's so much darkness, where people need to be set free, released from bondage, Lord, who are we to argue with you and to use our issues of identity and credibility and authority and ability to make us unavailable to you? Lord, I pray for some here this morning who really do need to turn back to you, whose lives have capitulated to sameness and safety. Maybe boredom and bitterness. Soften our hearts, open us. And God, I for one am grateful that you use some things in my life that I've wanted to keep tucked away and out of sight. And you're awakening me to the joy of knowing what I really do have. I thank you for taking me through sweaty palms and dry mouths and teaching me that I just can't lick my hands. I need you. A good father, an awesome daddy to jump into the adventure that you have for me. And would you help us? To follow you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you stand? And just for a moment as you stand, we're going to have a time of invitation today. And would love for you to come and to be prayed for to pray. I want to let you know a couple things. Tonight at 5 o'clock, we're having a meeting in our gym about something really cool and missional. Uh, I'm going to be going to the Dominican Republic with our team in the, this summer. And we invite you to prayerfully consider joining us. That would be a good way to jump into something uh, kind of fun, possibly dangerous. But we're going to hear about the Hispaniola Mountain Ministry tonight. One of our couples who dedicated a baby last Sunday night, Chris Mixon and his wife, they're going to be going um, probably midterm, long-term over there. Uh, early this fall, we'll be sending them. And they're going to be uh, speaking tonight and sharing some stuff with Scott Wilson in the gym at 5 o'clock. So go home and eat and get a nap and come back at 5 and hear about this uh, if you're interested in this. And then Tuesday night, May the 1st. Am I right, Van? Got my dates right. Tuesday night, May 1st. We're having a a cool gathering also in the gym in our back parking lot to learn how we as a church can do more and more skillfully come around families who are in the foster care and adoption system, who are loving on people in desperate times, how we can support and encourage these families. That's going to be on Tuesday, May the 1st, but Van would love to see anybody that wants to help because we need some volunteers to serve in this area. Hey, John, Mark, and the team are going to lead us. Let's lift our voices, and if we can pray for you today, you come forward.